0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University, and I will be your host. Today, I'm with Chris Watson. Dr. Watson is a pediatric intensivist. And Dan McCullum, an emergency medicine physician here at MCG.
1: Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Zach.
0: Hi,
2: Zach. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to be here and discussing uh, DKA, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, today. Uh, This is a really common pediatric presentation in both the emergency room and ICU. Let's
1: start with a clinical case. All right, so you're working a shift in the PEDS emergency department when an 11-year-old boy with no significant past medical history is brought in by EMS with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, increased work of breathing, altered mental status, and increased urine output. Blood glucose, in route, was listed as high, with the glucometer being unable to give you a specific number. Dr. Watson, what are your initial thoughts when evaluating this child with likely new-onset DKA? So let's
2: start by looking at the clinical findings in this case. One of the first things we notice is that this patient is presenting with several of the typical signs and symptoms of DKA. These include drowsiness, abdominal pain, deep sighing respirations, which we also know as Kussmaul respirations, polyuria, and hyperglycemia. If we took additional history, we might also find that there was recent weight loss and polydipsia. On physical exam, we might also expect to find evidence of dehydration and tachycardia. So to answer the question, as I'm conducting my initial PALS evaluation of this child, some of the initial concerns that I might have would be about first establishing adequate IV access, ideally with two separate peripheral IVs, then starting my fluid resuscitation and to begin thinking about volume repletion. Next, I'm thinking about starting a continuous insulin infusion with a focus on avoiding hypokalemia. And to help us out along the way, we may also send some basic labs, including chemistries, a blood gas, an h and a urinalysis, uh, and other labs as they're available. And then finally, I'm trying to keep an eye out and looking out for the more rare, but potentially life-threatening complications associated with DKA, such as cerebral edema or occult sepsis.
1: I really want to encourage my more junior colleagues to be vigilant and look out for possible new presentations of DKA. Frequently, these patients don't have a prior diagnosis of diabetes. Subtle symptoms, such as malaise or polyuria, are frequently the only symptoms. Be rather liberal in your request for blood glucose levels if new-onset diabetes is suggested by your history and exam.
0: So after considering other possible causes, how do you make the diagnosis of DKA? Well, Dr. McCollum
2: actually hit the nail right on the head, which is pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is very helpful in making this diagnosis in the pediatric DKA patient. But first, we need to remember a few basics about DKA. DKA is primarily due to a relative or absolute insulin deficiency that results in a progressive hyperglycemic and a hyperosmolar state. This triggers a complex metabolic cascade that ultimately drives the body into a catabolic state that drives a vicious cycle, resulting in increased glucose and ketone production. Over time, this hyperglycemia begins to drive a large osmotic diuresis in both dehydration
1: and metabolic acidosis that ensue. So just to make sure I'm understanding, a patient with DKA doesn't have enough insulin in their body. They're basically breaking down some of their body's tissues in an effort to try to fuel the body. Does that sound about right?
2: That's right on. So basically what's happening over time is that you're getting a large diuresis, the patient's becoming hypovolemic and more acidotic. So some of the basic common criteria that we use to make this diagnosis are hyperglycemia with a glucose greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, acidosis uh, with a pH less than 7.3 or a bicarb less than 15. And as a side note, we don't actually have to check an arterial blood gas to document this. Venous blood gases are completely fine. And then also ketosis with elevated urine or serum ketone concentrations. And then we can actually further break that down a little bit more by specifically looking at mild, moderate, or severe classifications based on the pH. So if the pH is between 7.2 and 7.3, it's mild DKA. If the pH is between 7.1 and 7.2, that's moderate DKA. And if they're acidotic with a pH less than
0: 7.1, that's severe DKA. Okay, so just to recap, insulin deficiency leads to hyperglycemia and ketone production. Dehydration and acidosis that result point to our diagnostic criteria of hyperglycemia, ketosis, and acidosis. And we also use the level of acidosis to describe how critically ill patients are at presentation. Dr. Watson, what are some other laboratory abnormalities that are commonly seen in the initial presentation of DKA? So there are a
2: number of lab abnormalities that we might see at presentation, but the big three that I think that we should focus on here today are anion gap acidosis, hyponatremia, and then an abnormal potassium. One of the most common and important things for us to understand is that DKA causes an anion gap metabolic acidosis. And in fact, DKA is the D part of our mud pile's anion gap mnemonic. And we know that the anion gap is the result of the sodium minus the chloride minus the bicarb, with a normal anion gap measured at approximately 6 to 10. But in DKA, the anion gap is actually much larger and may be in the 20 to 30 range. And if the gap is greater than 35, we might also want to think about a concomitant lactic acidosis. If we pause for a moment just to think about the hyponatremia, we realize that the hyperglycemia is causing an osmotic shift of fluid out of the cells into the extracellular space, and so we end up with a dilutional hyponatremia. We can actually calculate a corrected sodium by adding 1.6 for every 100 of glucose greater than 100 to help calculate and help guide our fluid replacement therapy. So as we correct the hyperglycemia, the serum sodium should actually slowly normalize, and a failure of that to normalize may actually be a sign and a risk
1: factor for cerebral edema. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the sodium that's reported on my chemistry panel is not truly reflective of the amount of sodium in the patient's body.
2: That's a great point, and that's absolutely correct. So calculating a corrected sodium will help us when we're thinking about fluids, and we'll have a little bit more discussion about that shortly. When we think about the potassium, often at presentation, we'll see that the K is in the high normal range. But we should realize that overall, these children have a total body potassium deficiency. This hyperkalemia is the result of intracellular shifts of K to the extracellular space as a result of acidosis, osmotic drag, and the overall insulin deficiency. However, as a result of the diuresis, urinary excretion, and vomiting, there ends up being over time a huge total body potassium deficiency. So as a result, when we start treatment with insulin, knowing that insulin will shift potassium intracellularly, we have to be very careful about potentially making hypokalemia
1: worse. So when I was first learning in emergency medicine as a resident, I would actually rush into the room of a patient with DKA and think, how quickly can I administer insulin? So if you're telling me that I actually don't know what their potassium level is, this could potentially be very dangerous. While the patient does need some insulin, I might actually need to replete the potassium to get it to a safe level before lowering it with my insulin therapy.
2: That's correct. And actually, while we're at the bedside, we can also take a look at the EKG to look for signs of hyper or hypokalemia that could help us while we're waiting for those labs to come back.
0: So the take-home points are, one, an anion gap metabolic acidosis, two, dilutional hyponatremia, And three, either hypo- or hyperkalemia, despite a total body potassium deficit. We also need to be careful not to be reassured by a normal potassium when we start an insulin infusion, as this will result in intracellular movement of potassium with resulting hypokalemia. Dr. McCollum, how do you typically begin resuscitating children with DKA?
1: The goals of initial resuscitation are to improve perfusion, likely secondary to hypovolemia, and identify and treat any inciting events, such as infection. The ISPAD 2018 guidelines specifically mention that fluid replacement should begin before starting insulin therapy. Isotonic crystalloids are used to restore peripheral circulation.
0: Dr. Watson, is there a preference of which type of fluid for the initial resuscitation?
2: During the initial resuscitation, for patients who are clearly dehydrated but not in shock, we should actually just begin with a 10 ml per kilo isotonic fluid bolus over 30 to 60 minutes. In the rare case of a DKA patient who does show up in shock uh, with hemodynamic and cardiovascular compromise, Repeated 20 ml per kilo boluses over 15 to 30 minutes, as per our PALS guidelines, would be indicated to help restore adequate perfusion. But it's also worth highlighting here that the ISPAD guidelines actually do not explicitly recommend which isotonic crystalloid fluid to use, though clearly colloid should not be used.
0: Related to our initial fluid choice, the first publication that I wanted to mention is entitled Resuscitation with Ringer's Lactate Compared with Normal Saline for Pediatric DKA by Bergman et al., You can find the details of the study in our show notes, but briefly, it was a retrospective study of over 49,000 children presenting with DKA. Participants were evaluated on the type of fluid provided during the initial resuscitation, that being lactated ringers to normal saline. Outcomes measured were total adjusted cost, length of stay, and rates of cerebral edema. In their results, the overwhelming majority of patients were treated with normal saline compared with only 4% exclusively treated with lactated ringers. They showed that the total adjusted costs and rates of cerebral edema were less for the LR group as compared to normal saline, but length of stay was not significantly changed. Dr. Watson, what initial impressions do you have after reviewing this article?
2: For context, traditionally normal saline has been the preferred fluid for the initial resuscitation of the DKA patient. But this article by Bergman et al. asks a really good question, which is, are there meaningful differences when using LR instead of normal saline initially? I find the results very interesting and expect that this article will help to trigger some very interesting discussion about which fluids we use up front. At a minimum, we should actually be aware, though, that normal saline is isotonic to plasma, but leads to a normal anion gap hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis over time, which is one of the common complications that we see of resuscitation of DKA patients once they make it to us in the ICU. Alternatively, LR is considered a balanced solution, but is relatively hypotonic due to a lower sodium content, and it also contains lactate that's metabolized to bicarb, which has further implications in the DKA patient. That said, the study looked at 10 years of data and it had a large study population. I think its biggest limitation was that the use of LR was infrequent, and it's possible that patients at the greatest risk of cerebral edema prefer interferentially received normal saline as the authors weren't ultimately able to control for that. So I don't think this article completely settles the debate about which fluid to use in the initial resuscitation, and I don't think it'll be the last study that we see looking at this question, but I do think that we're now more
1: likely to see the use of LR for the initial resuscitation of DKA patients. So personally, I like lactated ringers a little bit better, even though the evidence is very low quality at this time. I think either crystalloid is justified. What's far more important than exactly which type of isotonic fluid you use is that you have an agreed-upon institutional protocol. This isn't a good time to cowboy it up and just do your own thing with DKA. You should have an agreed-upon thing that everyone in your group is doing to make sure that you're all on the same page.
0: So after initial fluid resuscitation, how do we continue to replace our patient's fluid deficit?
2: So we need to keep in mind uh, our ultimate goals with the fluid management of the child who is in DKA, which is ultimately to provide both ongoing maintenance needs plus replacing their fluid deficit at an even rate over 24 to 48 hours. The fluid choice itself should be something with a tonicity in the range of half to normal saline and needs to have adequate potassium as KCl, KFOS, or K-acetate. If the K is low from the start, we can add it after the initial fluid resuscitation. Otherwise, we usually defer adding the potassium until we're starting the insulin infusion, as we mentioned earlier, knowing that the insulin will drive potassium down by shifting it intracellularly. If the patient is hyperkalemic or has EKG findings of hyperkalemia with a K greater than 6, we may actually even wait a little bit longer to start the potassium in the fluids, and at least until some urine output is documented. Next, we can actually estimate the degree of dehydration based on clinical exam and attempt to calculate the fluid deficit. However, there's often a lot of variability between providers in doing so. So one simplified approach that's been studied took 3 quarters normal saline and ran it at two times maintenance for the first 24 hours, then decreasing those fluids to one to one and a half times maintenance after 24 hours or once the acidosis is resolved. We also need to realize that in most patients, the acidosis will actually get better when treated within 24 hours. So the
1: completion of the fluid deficit replacement is often done orally once we've transitioned to sub-Q insulin. It's very important for practitioners in the emergency department to realize that they may actually have to start some of this replacement after that initial fluid bolus themselves. This is especially true if there's times when there's not enough pediatric ICU beds. So you need to be familiar with these concepts, even if you're operating in a system that's smooth enough to get people upstairs in a hurry, which is honestly ideal in the vast majority of cases.
0: Given the variability of fluids used in both the ED and the ICU, this will be a good opportunity to include the second article. It's titled Clinical Trial of Fluid Infusion Rates for Pediatric DKA by Kuperman et al. in the PCARN DK Fluid Study Group. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. This was a randomized controlled trial that examined the effects of the rate of administration and the sodium content of IV fluids on neurologic outcomes in children with DKA. Children were randomly assigned to one of four treatment groups in a two-by-two two design. All patients first received 10 milliliters per kilo of normal saline and then were randomized to a 10% body weight rehydration over 24 hours or 5% body weight rehydration over 48 hours. Participants were also randomized to receive normal saline or half-normal saline maintenance fluids. The primary outcome was a decline in mental status, such as a GCS Lesson 14 during treatment of DKA, as a marker of possible cerebral edema. They included over 1,300 cases of DKA in their analysis. Researchers found that neither the rate of administration or the sodium chloride content of IV fluids significantly influenced neurologic outcomes in children with DKA. Dr. Watson, what are your take-home points from this study? This study was a well-done
2: prospective RCT looking at acute and long-term neurological sequelae in children treated with slower versus more rapid fluid administration using either half-normal or normal saline. The results suggest that for children with 5-10% dehydration based on body weight, the risk of cerebral edema does not appear to be different based on the rate of sodium content within these ranges when replaced over 24-48 to 48 hours. So based on this, the ISPAD 2018 guidelines state that the maintenance plus replacement fluids can be half normal, normal saline, or a balanced salt solution such as Ringer's Lactate or Plasmalite. But the key here to note is that the total deficit
1: should be replaced slowly at a steady rate over 24-48 to 48 hours. For full details of this study, please see our show notes. Let's go ahead and summarize a bit of what we learned so far. Make the diagnosis of DKA with a blood sugar of greater than 200, a pH of less than 7.3, an elevated anion gap, and some sign of ketones in the blood or urine. Second, replace fluids prior to starting a patient on insulin. Third, beware hypokalemia, as these patients are almost always depleted in total body potassium. Insulin therapy will lower this, so be certain to replace potassium early.
0: Dr. Watson, do you have any clinical pearls for starting insulin therapy?
2: So if we're just thinking about treating the hyperglycemia, rehydration with our initial fluid bolus alone frequently actually causes a marked decline in the serum glucose. But the critical take-home here is remembering that insulin has multiple uses in the treatment of DKA. Not only does it lower the blood glucose level, but more importantly, it corrects the underlying acidosis by restoring normal cellular metabolism and homeostasis. So insulin really is the key to treating DKA. Typically, insulin is started after the initial fluid bolus and at a rate of 0.05 to 0.1 units per kilo per hour. Many pediatric protocols start at 0.1 units per kilo per hour. We typically prefer that the glucose not drop any faster than 100 milligrams per deciliter per hour, so if the patient's extremely insulin sensitive, we may have to actually adjust this further. Another key point here is that there is no need for an insulin bolus. In fact, the rapid decline in the glucose as a result of an insulin bolus may actually increase the risk for cerebral edema. Now, the goal range of glucose is between 150 to 200, which we want to maintain our levels at until the acidosis is resolved, indicated by a pH greater than 7.3, a bicarb greater than 15, or closure of the anion gap. So to help us along the way, we may want to make sure that we check point-of-care glucoses hourly and that we check electrolytes as often as every few hours. To get to this point, as the blood glucose falls, once it reaches a level below 300, we may have to go ahead and start glucose uh, in our IV fluids. One common technique to do this is referred to as a two-bag system, which uses two bags of identical fluid, except that one is D10 and the other contains no dextrose. So by wiring them in together and changing the rates relative to each other,
1: we can have D0, D5, and D10. This two-bag system is much simpler than other systems I've tried in the past to manage patients with DKA. And I really want to stress for the emergency medicine folks listening that you might be called upon to do this, especially if you have to transfer a patient, which is a very common situation as most hospitals don't have a pediatric intensive care unit. So if it was going to be a long transport time, it would be very appropriate to go ahead and start with a maintenance fluid replacement even while arranging that transport. Even in hospitals that do have a pediatric ICU, sometimes there aren't enough beds for all the sick kids, and you might have to manage them for the first few hours. So it's important to be familiar with these concepts, even if you wouldn't ideally be doing it for very long.
0: So important points here. One, defer insulin infusion until after the initial fluid resuscitation. Two, add IV glucose when appropriate to avoid hypoglycemia because the continued insulin will be needed to stop the ongoing ketosis. And three, follow labs closely to ensure normal potassium levels and that the acidosis is resolving. So, Dr. McCollum, if our metabolic acidosis fails to improve initially, is there any role in using sodium bicarbonate in DKA?
1: That's a great question, Zach. Control trials show no clinical benefit from bicarbonate infusion. Bicarbonate therapy may cause a paradoxical CNS acidosis, and rapid correction of acidosis with bicarbonate causes hypokalemia. The role of bicarbonate therapy should be limited to the rare patient with life-threatening hyperkalemia or unusually severe acidosis, such as a pH of less than 6.9, with compromised cardiac contractility. This is an understudied population. We honestly don't know if these patients benefit from bicarb therapy or not. Almost every resuscitationist will admit that at some point they're willing to give bicarbonate, but we truthfully don't know from the science exactly
0: what that point should be. I want to finish with a discussion of cerebral edema, a dreaded complication of DKA. Cerebral edema accounts for the overwhelming majority of morbidity and mortality for these patients in the ED and the ICU. Pathogenesis of cerebral edema is not known. Previously, it was thought to be secondary to rapid fluid administration with abrupt changes in serum osmolality, but now more recent evidence has led to the theory that dehydration and resulting cerebral hypoperfusion associated with severe DKA may contribute to cerebral injury. Dr. Watson, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you see in patients developing cerebral edema?
2: This is a really important topic, as you mentioned, Zach. Though clinically overt cerebral edema is extremely rare in DKA, this is where there's the greatest mortality, so we need to have a really high index of suspicion and intervene rapidly. Symptoms may first start as nonspecific complaints, such as headache, and then progress to irritability, confusion, and an overall decline in neurological status with GCS less than 14. We may find evidence of papilledema or cranial nerve palsies, which are very concerning on exam. Cushing's triad of hypertension, bradycardia, and irregular breathing is a really late finding of impending herniation. But another important take-home here is that neuroimaging is not required to make the diagnosis of cerebral edema. This is a clinical diagnosis. Now, from the epidemiologic perspective, we know that cerebral edema is more common in younger patients, especially with new-onset diabetes or with longer duration of symptoms. Cerebral edema is extremely rare after adolescence. Other risk factors include greater hypocapnia, increased BUN, And again, more severe acidosis at presentation.
0: So after you have your diagnosis of cerebral edema, how do you start treatment?
2: Rapid intervention is key once we identify cerebral edema to prevent any ongoing injury. Raising the head of the bed to 30 degrees and treating any hypoxemia with oxygen are easy things that we can do while we're standing at the bedside. If there's any airway compromise or respiratory failure, neuroprotective intubation may be needed. We want to ensure that we maintain a normal blood pressure without excessive fluid administration. Avoiding hypotension is another critical goal, as it might compromise cerebral perfusion pressure. Next, hyperosmolar agents are the main line of therapy. Manitol, or 3% hypertonic sealing, should be immediately available for rapid administration. Check out our show notes for info on the dosing. Once we've stabilized a child, neuroimaging may then be considered to further evaluate for any other potential causes. But again, this is a clinical diagnosis, and neuroimaging should not delay any of our treatment.
1: As an ED doc, I strongly recommend you reach out for expert consultation if you suspect cerebral edema. The diagnosis can be very tricky, despite being a clinical diagnosis, as subtle signs such as a headache or not quite feeling as well as they were on arrival could be clues for this critical diagnosis to make. Begin initial management as discussed previously, but realize that these patients are extremely sick and difficult to manage. It's also a fairly rare presentation that most emergency providers won't see very many cases of. They frequently require transfer to tertiary care, and early involvement with those teams is a very good idea.
2: That's a great point to reiterate, Dan. Again, ask for help early. Also be sure to check out our show notes for a few electronic resources that can be helpful as well, including
1: a mobile app that was designed and developed here at MCG for the management of pediatric DKA. So to summarize a few of the key take-home points, number one, be on the lookout for possible new cases of diabetes, as many cases of pediatric DKA are made at the time of initial diagnosis of diabetes in the emergency department. Number two, concerns over reasonable volume bolus of crystalloid causing cerebral edema appear unfounded. 10 to 20 cc's per kilogram of either normal saline or LR is a reasonable place to start in most pediatric DKA patients. Number three, Potassium levels are critical to be aware of in DKA, as total body potassium is almost always low. Begin replacing potassium prior to starting insulin therapy, unless patient is already hyperkalemic. Number four, an insulin bolus is not needed in pediatric DKA. While insulin bolus is debated in adult diabetic ketoacidosis, we recommend against it in children. Lastly, number five, look for subtle signs of change in mental status, headache, or changes in vital signs that suggest cerebral edema. Get the head of bed up, consider Manitol, and get expert consultation immediately. I'd like to thank you both for your time in discussing this critical topic with us. It's been
0: a blast. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, remember this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.